0: Good morning. The peace of the Christ, peace of the Lord be with all of you. Uh, my name is Brian Fry. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 18, or it's printed there in your bulletin, uh, or you can also turn to Second Samuel chapter 22. Actually, it's the exact same thing. Um, what we're looking at here is what's commonly called the Song of David, which is funny because he actually wrote a lot of songs. Um, but this is the one that gets called his song. This is at the very, very end of King David's life. Um, and, uh, and you'll notice there, the so-called superscript, uh, is printed in your margin. The, uh, the part at the beginning of the Psalm, if you've read through the Psalms and you see the little part that seems like it's separate from the text, that's actually part of the scripture there in Hebrew, that would have been verse one. Um, But we read, it says, this is, David addresses this to the choir master. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so this is David at the very end of his life. This is just, so if you're reading through 2 Samuel, this is right at the very end. And he's looking back on all of his life, all this stuff, reflecting on all of it. And he says, let me tell you my story. Let me summarize this for you. Let me tell you what really happened. And it's a song and it's a prayer. And that is beautiful. And I love that it gets included in our Psalter. It gets included in the, in the hymn book of God's people because it's, we're basically being invited to make David's song our own. We're saying, hey, this isn't only found in Second Samuel chapter 22 when David sings. This is actually now a part of the corporate worship, the corporate prayer life of all of God's people. And so hopefully that's what we'll do a little bit this morning is make David's song our own. So let me read this for us. It's a long psalm. I'm only going to read a, a portion of it. This is God's word. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness, his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds, the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And then the psalm ends with these two verses. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his, <coughs> excuse me, and his offspring forever. Let me pray for us before we take a look at this. <coughs> Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you use it in our lives to work powerfully in us. We ask that you would accompany your word with your spirit this morning and so work in us. Give us greater faith and give us greater clarity of how it is that you work in us and around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is, as you know, Thanksgiving week. If you didn't know, it's coming up. It's Thursday. Um, And this, you know, this is the beginning of the holiday season, really. And the holiday season, one of the wonderful things slash maybe really hard things about the holiday season is it's a naturally reflective time of year. You can't help but think back on the past year as we come into Thanksgiving and Christmas and the new new year. You can't help but look back on the past year. You also can't help but look back on, on past years and past holidays and memories come back. And probably a lot of us will end up, find ourselves sitting around a table on Thursday and somebody will ask, let's all go around and say what we're thankful for. And which is a great question, really. We should think about that. It's a great question, and I always get really nervous when somebody asks that because I'm like, well, how you know, how serious are we getting here? Because um, like, can I just say, can I say I'm thankful for nice fall weather and be done with it? Or are we talking like real stuff? I am thankful for nice fall weather, but I don't. Maybe that's just me, but I'm. I imagine that some of you get nervous at that question too. Look, because for, for some of us, that question, what are you thankful for, is an easy question. We look back on the past year and we think th- there's, a whole, there's so much to be thankful for. With, there are so many things that immediately come to mind. For a lot of us, though, that is a very hard question. You're asking me to look back on a year that has been horrible and asking me to find things that I'm thankful for. For some of us, that question immediately brings up all sorts of past years and so many wonderful memories and lots of nostalgia. And for others of us, it brings back years and years of pain and for all the things that we've lacked over many a holiday, right? So what would it look like instead to look back and to reflect... And not only see the surface level stuff that we automatically see, but actually what would it look like to, to see God as we look back, to, look, to, to have theological hindsight? What would, it look, what would it look like, what would it sound like if as we reflected on our life, we see behind the things that are right in front of our face to the God who is overall? Some of you aren't Christians. Some of you aren't really sure. Um... It's worth asking yourself, before you answer the question, what am I thankful for this week? I would encourage you to answer the question, who am I thankful to? There's an implied thankfulness directed towards someone or something when you give thanks. It's worth asking because, look, I understand that it is entirely possible to imagine your life and imagine your past year as if, you know, it's just a series of natural, logical events and consequences and not see anything past the surface level But how sure are you that that's all that there is? How sure are you? How reliable have your lenses been in the past? And how reliable and trustworthy do you assume your perspective as you reflect back actually is? Worth asking yourself. So this is David here reflecting on his life. He's looking back on the whole thing. He knows he's at the end of his life. And he's saying, here's my story. Here's the whole deal. And uh, if you know anything about David's life, it is a mixed bag, to say the least. Um, There's a whole lot of wonderful stuff, and there's a whole lot of tragedy. There's a whole lot of successes and victories, and there's a whole lot of epic, like, biblical proportion failures, right? Right? Um, there's a lot of deep heartbreak and there's a lot of very deep joy as well. So he starts a a little recap of his life for those of you who don't know David's story. He begins totally unknown, just this overlooked shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. And he gets anointed king. He's going to be the new king, the replacement king for Saul, who was a total train wreck. Before he actually takes the throne, though, there's the whole Goliath thing where he defeats this giant and rescues God's people and so he's instantly super popular as you would imagine and everybody loves him except for the king of course because he feels threatened by him so he spends somewhere between 10 to 15 years running from Saul and the entire army of Israel they're hunting him down trying to kill him um along the way his best friend Jonathan gets killed eventually he does take the throne he becomes king David And there uh, is relative peace, but then as soon as there's relative peace, there's the whole Bathsheba and Uriah incident where he takes advantage of another man's wife and has her husband killed. Um, His daughter, Tamar, gets assaulted and violated by her half-brother, his other son, Amnon. And then Amnon gets killed by his brother, in revenge, Absalom, and then Absalom starts this revolt, and now David's on the, run, uh, on the run from his own son who wants to kill him. Da- Absalom loses the revolt, but that means uh, David's son is now dead. Okay, that's David's life, like in a nutshell. I just ran you through First and Second Samuel. Um, now David's at the end of his life, and he looks back on all of it, and he says, let me show you what was really going on. I'll put it all in a song for you. And what he shows us is God. He says, look, if you're going to understand my story, you're going to have to understand the God that sat behind all of it. It is a story, first and foremost, about God. And there are three things that he highlights. Well, three things that I want us to see that I I think he highlights that he shows us about God. And the first is God's presence. He wants to be very, very clear on God's presence through all of this. You see this especially in, in the first six verses here. And David basically is saying, as I look back on my life, through all of it, through the joys and the sorrows, the highs, the lows, the stuff I'm proud of, the stuff I really wish that I could undo, as I look at all of it, I see that God was with me. I was never alone. Look at the way he describes God. He paints this vivid picture of who God is. He says, I love you. Oh, Lord, you are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's beautiful. And you get this, there's this theme, hopefully you hear it running throughout all of this. The way he describes God is this, there's this theme of protection. There's a theme of of God as a strong defense. And you, you get the sense that David clearly feels vulnerable. David looks back on his life and he sees himself as incredibly vulnerable and very weak and helpless were it not for the fact that God was with him. In other words, he, he has a sense that he is vulnerable and then yet not insecure. Can you imagine feel that way? To recognize your vulnerability and not feel insecure? Like, insecurity, I think, is one of those universal experiences, probably, and because it, it's the natural response to being vulnerable, it's the natural response to understanding that you are weak and that you are exposed. And David's saying, My experience of my vulnerability is completely changed because of the reality that I know that God is with me. So, worth asking yourself, what makes you feel vulnerable? Uh, When is it that you instinctively feel exposed and in danger and like the things that you value the most are threatened and they're threatened by something beyond your control? David's story, if you read through it, it kind of, it's kind of like a, a Jason Bourne movie. Um, Where it's like, there's always some other danger. You know, there's never not a new threat. He's constantly in danger. And as soon as there's some little bit of resolution, uh, a little bit of calm, you feel like, I can breathe. You just check your watch and you're like, oh, the movie's not over yet. There's something coming. And then if the movie is over, you're like, well, another one's coming out. There's always some new threat, right? He starts with the whole Goliath deal and that goes fine. But then there's Saul chasing him and then there's his own son and it's just one thing after another, one threat after another. Isn't that how it feels sometimes? Like, pr- probably nobody's trying to kill you, but doesn't it feel though like sometimes just, I'm not safe? And I don't know what it is, and I don't know what's coming around the corner but I know I'm not safe. This could fall apart at any moment. It could be with money. It could be with your career. It could be with your family. It could be uh, uh, someone you love is diagnosed with cancer. It could be your fears about the, the future and where your career is going. Where am I going to live? What about my relationships? And the thing is, the threats, they're not always coming at us from the outside. A whole lot of time, the threats are, are coming from the inside. You know David must have felt like this. I, I cannot imagine him not thinking after the whole Bathsheba and Uriah thing where he decides to, to not say no to his desires, to all of his impulses, and then decides instead to take and use and misuse his friend's wife, and then have his friend killed to try to cover his tracks. He had, to, he, he had to have been thinking, okay, like, yeah, there's all that stuff out there. But I would probably be okay if it weren't for all the stuff in here. Like maybe my biggest dangers aren't actually out there. Have you been there? I've been there. Uh, have you felt vulnerable because of the stuff in your own heart? Because of the struggles that you face that are ongoing that just won't seem to go away? Or the temptations that you don't expect? that just blindsides you sometimes. And, and, or, or just your heart that is never satisfied and it is consistently inconsistent and it is faithfully unfaithful. And it loves the wrong things. And, and our hearts, or we love the right things, but in the wrong ways and to the wrong degrees. Like, do, do you ever feel like, you know, I'd be fine if it weren't for my heart. Like I could handle all the other stuff in my life if, I, if the stuff in here would just quiet down. I feel that way. I'm sure David did at a lot of times. I imagine you do too. But what David is saying is, I look back on my life, and what I see is that I was never alone. Despite whatever it might have felt like, it was never me versus my enemies. It was never me alone, by myself, vulnerable and exposed versus my enemies. It was always me, sheltered in God, surrounded by a fortress, a stronghold, while the world around me is chaos. It is me firmly grounded on a rock while the water swirls around me. That's the vision. That's the, that's the scene that he paints. So how... What is it that you feel most threatened by? And how would it reframe the way you see all of that, the way that your vulnerability and your sense of exposure, how would that be reframed if you could step back and see clearly that you are not alone and you never have been? And not like not alone, like when you're with some equally weak friend who's like, I'm here with you while we get destroyed. This is not, and it's not a neutral observer just saying, well, I'm here. This is an active defender who surrounds you with strength and with power. That is why David says, he says, I love you. I live in you. My residence is within your fortress. I run to you for dear life. I cry out to you for help. I love verse 6. If you've been around Christianity a lot, maybe this just sounds familiar to you. Try to hear this with fresh ears. He says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice. And my cry made it to his ears. God hears the cries for help. Like the the distress and the worries and the fears and the threats, they make it to his ears. And he answers. He responds. And he doesn't just, he doesn't respond with a pat on the back. He doesn't just give us some empty words. He's not a coach. who just gives you a pat on the back and says, it's all right, champ, just get out there and keep trying. It's all going to be okay. Keep your chin up. Because he knows that that's not true. He knows that we're vulnerable. He knows we don't got it. He knows we can't just keep our chin up. And so he responds with power. And when he responds... It says the earth shakes, right? That's the second thing that David highlights here is God's power in all this. So he's present with us, but he is powerful as well. This is, uh, look especially verses like 7 through 19, that big chunk there. Look at how David describes what it looks like when God responds to our cries for help. When his children are in danger, this is how God responds. Verse 7. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. And it goes on and on and on. Some of you are like me. um, Where you've got super strong protective instincts and not the physique to back them up, right? Um, There is nothing in the world that gets me so worked up as the thought of something threatening someone or something that I love, right? And so often, whatever that threat is, is honestly just something beyond my control. Even in my own imagination, it's out of my control. Do you feel that way? God has never felt that way. His children have never been confronted by a threat that was beyond his control. And when he responds, the best language David can find for it is fire and smoke and earthquakes and storms. There are echoes here of, of Mount Sinai in, in the Exodus. So after God hears the cries of his people as they're enslaved in Egypt and he delivers them powerfully, And then he draws near to them at Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be here. I'm going to make my home with you. And when he draws near, the earth shakes. The mountain shakes. And there's fire. And there is smoke. And there are dark clouds. And there's thunder and lightning. And David says, that same presence has been with me. Every step of the way. That same presence was there when I called. God did not, and in fact, God cannot set aside his power when he answers or cries. Isn't that the heart of the gospel too, right? That when God draws near, that when God says that he is with us, he comes with power. He comes with power to save and with power to redeem and power to heal and power to guide. Right? This, the imagery, it comes up all over the, the Bible, but think about when Jesus died on the cross, when he takes all of the mess on himself and crucifies and what it what, there's earthquakes. <laughs> and there's deep darkness. And then that Sunday, what there's an earthquake. And he says, it's over, it's done, new life, resurrection. It's all, it's all over the over. Look, it's, it's so easy, I think, for us to fall into thinking that Jesus and the gospel are this helpful, friendly thing that we add to our lives. It just gives us some inspiration and just gives us a little bit of clarity. The reality is this, is that Jesus is nothing short of the creator of the universe entering into this world, intervening. And when he does, it is earthquakes and storms. One of the things I love about David's story, if you read through it, is it's really, it's, it's earthy. It's, it's relatable. There are actually no overt miracles in the whole story of the life of David. It's not that God's absent. It's just that the way he works seems like it's just in, in very ordinary ways. He, God works through David's skill with the sling. To kill Goliath, God works through David's smarts to escape from his enemies over and over and over again. Uh, God works through the rebuke of a pastor. It's, just, it's very normal, ordinary things. But here's David at the end of it all looking back and saying, here's what's really going on. Here's what actually happened. It is earthquakes and fire. It is the creator of the universe stepping down to powerfully intervene. Here's the point, really. It's just this. Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, all of it, with this, this picture of God intervening with unmitigated, earth-shaking power is the most accurate perspective on David's life. And the very same picture would apply to our lives as well. By and large, the things that God uses to work in our lives feel super ordinary from our perspective, Right? The people that we know, the church that we attend, the community that we 're in, our family that he 's placed us in it look things that look ordinary, but if we could pull back the curtain and see what is happening, we would see that God is working. the creator of the universe is intervening so I mean, think about when Shelton prayed a few minutes ago, what was he asking God to do? He was saying. Ex- my Father, our Creator, who made all of this, will you please intervene? Will you act with power in the places where the church is suffering and where it is suppressed and where it is persecuted? Will you intervene with care for folks whose lives are in danger and who've lost a ton of stuff? Or, and when you pray, do you understand that that's what you are doing? And we're told that our cries make it to His ears. We see the surface level stuff around us. We're just kind of unimpressed. But the reality is that when God works, it is the creator of the universe intervening and it is spectacular and it is miraculous and it is earth-shaking. Verse 9 says he bends the heavens to work in our lives. So like we think, we think back on our on our life, uh, okay, I came to trust in Jesus because I was convinced. I was convicted of my sin, so I believed. The reality is that God broke in. God tore down the walls. He tore down my hostility towards Him. We think, you know, I was heading in the wrong direction, and God turned me around. And the the reality is that God brought us out of death and into life. We think, you know, I've just kind of grown up in this. You know, it's just kind of... What I do. The reality is, it is God who has been actively and powerfully protecting you every step of the way. Uh, George Whitfield is a famous old preacher from the 1700s, Great Awakening. Um, And uh, he preached, some would say, up to 10,000 sermons in his lifetime. But um, the story goes, I don't know, I wasn't there. Uh, but that someone came up to him after he preached one time, and uh, and asked him it was a publisher, and they said, "Would you allow me to publish and and print your sermons?" And I love Whitfield's response. He said, "Well, I have no inherent objection if you like, but you'll never be able to put on the printed page the lightning and the thunder." I love that, like. Think, you should think the same thing about the conversations that you have with your friends and the encouragement that you offer, the hard conversations that you have, the rebuke that you give, the comfort that you provide. You can't put on the printed page the thunder and the lightning as God works through things like that. Or when you pray, when you pray over and over and over again, maybe through tears, maybe through callousness that God would work, God would work in your life, that God would work in someone else's life, in your children's lives, in your family's lives. When you are asking that, well, you can't put on the printed page the thunder and the lightning. So if that's how God works, if he comes with that kind of power, why aren't we terrified? Shouldn't we be terrified? because he's not against us. That's why. It's because he's for us. He, he, he's our fortress. He's the one protecting us. Why? Why us? Why would people like you and me get a protection like that? Look at verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place, into to a wide open valley where there's no chance of enemies sneaking up and nobody hiding. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. That's it. He delighted in me. Is that what you imagine? When you, when you think of how God must be viewing you, when you imagine his attitude and his posture towards you as, as he works in you, as he works around you, do you picture delight or do you picture like, well, you know, I'll, I'll put up with this. Like some of us are very, very comfortable with the idea of a powerful and unapproachably holy and glorious and fear inducing God. But the idea that he would delight in us is completely foreign to some of you. It sounds ludicrous. How could he delight in me? Well, it's because of Jesus because he delights in his son in whom to whom we have been united and so god can no sooner be disgusted with jesus i mean with you than he could be disgusted with jesus god can no sooner be annoyed with you, then he can be annoyed with Jesus. He can no sooner be dissatisfied with you than he can be dissatisfied with Jesus. But that, like, isn't that the picture that we bring so often? We imagine that God is just kind of looking at us and saying like, how could you, you know? Uh, would you just stop? Like, would you just quit embarrassing me so much? Would you quit being so high-maintenance? Like I, I kind of expected more out of you. Right, that's what we imagine, but that's because we do not imagine ourselves sheltered in Christ and united to Him. All right, you know the picture where all this is going that the Bible gives us, where that this whole thing, where we're heading, it's a party. It's a big old celebration. Right, that's where God's taking this. He's taking this to a party, not like a well, whatever, sure. Come on in. Like, and it makes me think of the, the parable of the prodigal son as the, father, as the son comes back and the father throws a party. And he's not like, okay, you know, let's, re, let's review your mistakes here. Let's make sure you learned your lesson. I can't believe you made it. No, he, here's what David says. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's it. Ahead of time. Not in response to all the stuff I've done. It was when I was lost. It was when I was helpless. It was when I was weak and in danger. He rescued me. Verse 17. He rescued me from my strong enemy because I was awesome and I was about to win all by myself. No. He rescued me from my strong enemy because they were too mighty for me. I need to wrap up, but third, lastly, thing David wants us to see about God is His promise. So His His presence and His power, and His promise. I have a friend who says alliteration is like a disease for preachers, and you just can't. Sometimes you just get three Ps, and that's how it works. Um, God is present with us; He is powerful, and third, His promise. Look at uh, at the very end the the two verses that are at the end there, verse 49 and 50. David writes, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing, sing to your great name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love. That word, steadfast love, is, it means faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. It, it's, it's what we just sang about. The great is thy faithfulness. He's speaking of unwavering commitment. So he says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows unwavering commitment and covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. And there, like you're reading through this psalm and you're feeling like, man, this is, this is me. I can make this my story. And then he throws in explicitly David and the king and his anointed. And you're like, hold on, man, I can't relate now. All of a sudden, this doesn't feel like it's about me. This is important, and it's actually incredibly helpful. Why can we say that God is faithful to us? Why is God faithful to us? Is it because of us? No, it's because of Christ. God is first faithful to Jesus, to his anointed, to the offspring of David, the king, Jesus And then he is faithful to us in him because we are united to him. In 2 Timothy, Paul Paul writes, if we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Why? Why would he do that? It says, because he cannot deny himself. In other words, because he made a promise and he's bound himself to us in Jesus Christ. So how can you be sure as you look back on your life, as you look back on your year, how can you be sure that God was with you? How can you be sure that God not only has been with you in the past, but actually will continue to stay with you into the future? Because that's the real dangerous part, right? Like the the two big questions that I think we bring into actually every relationship, including our relationship with our Father in heaven, these two questions is, are you with me and are you gonna remain with me? In verse 50, what does he say? He says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed and to David and his offspring forever. And it is because of him, because of the offspring of David, that we can be assured that he is not only, not only has he been with us, he will remain with us. He cannot break his promises. What happens if we start, if we fall into thinking that God's faithfulness to us is based on us? What happens if we sort of feel like, well, he's faithful to us because, you know, I'm keeping up or I'm not keeping up. We either, we, Two sides you can fall on. If we think God's faithfulness to us hinges on our faithfulness to him, either we're led to self-righteousness and pride because we think we're doing all right. And and then we we get angry and we feel like he's holding out on us when things are hard. Or guilt and shame and we try to hide from God. We're constantly beating ourselves up and we feel worthless and we feel insecure. David did not hold up his end of the bargain. Read through his story. Actually, he kind of did. Because he didn't have an end of the bargain. God didn't hold out half the promise and say, David, you take this part, and I'll take this part. God promised freely and graciously, and that's it. It is about God's faithfulness to his promises. It's never about our faithfulness to him. So just in closing, it's worth noting that this psalm is a prayer, right? It's addressed to God. He starts with, I love you, O oh Lord. And several times he's, he's talking about God, but he's talking to God. He's praising, he's worshiping God. What would it look like for you this week, this holiday season, What would it sound like as you reflect on your year to reflect not just on God, but to reflect to God? To tell Him about your year. To to bring your threats to Him, the things that you feel like threaten you. What if you cried out to Him about this? Why don't we do that together now? Let's pray. Our Father, we have a really hard time seeing what it is that you're doing. And you know that about us. And you are merciful to us. And you do not leave us even though we struggle to see you. Father, I pray that this week and this close of the year, we would look back on our lives, but that you would not allow us to look back without seeing you. And Father, when it is hard to see you, convince us deeply and powerfully of your presence with us and your faithfulness to us. This is going to be a hard week for a lot of us. Thank you that you are with us.